This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Warren Frank Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Warren School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. Our guest consists of experts like the world's leading authority on long-term economic growth, Bob Gordon. We will continue to see jobs created rather than destroyed. Former chair of the Federal Reserve, Janet Yellen. I mean, I don't think either of us ever expected that we would live through a financial crisis. Or even the head of the Digital Indian Foundation, Arvind Gupta. The reason that people are talking about India is massive digitization and financial inclusion that we have done over the last couple of years. Enjoy this week's show. Welcome back to Behind the Markets here in Business Radio, powered by the Warren School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, in our Philadelphia studio with my co-host, Lee Chen Ren. And we're talking to one of the authors of a new book called Divested, Inequality in the age of finance, I'd, wa- I'd like to welcome Ken Ho Lin to the program. Ken is an associate professor of sociology at the University of Texas, Austin. His primary research examines how the economic and demographic changes in the past four decades have shaped the distribution of resources in the U.S. and other developed countries. Welcome to Behind the Markets, Ken. Hi. I'm happy to be here. Uh, very interesting book. I've been going through, taking some notes for us here, uh, talking about the markets of finance. You have a lot of uh, contentions in the book about how sort of finance is at the core of, of some big term sort of inequality trends. And it's speaking to a lot of the issues I think we're going to face in this upcoming election. Um, maybe you could sort of talk through what what your focus of the research has been and maybe some of your big conclusions from the book. Yes, of course. So the basic argument of the book is that the rise of finance in the U.S. has been sort of contributing to the rising inequality at the same time. And often when we think about finance and inequality, we only think about sort of the high earners on Wall Street. And this book is trying to explore the relationship between finance and inequality in a systematic way. And we're basically arguing there are three mechanisms that finance can contribute to inequality. I think the first of all, and probably the one that the listeners are most familiar with, is how resources are being extracted into the financial sectors. And now we're looking into deeper into how sort of finance influence uh, firms manage their resources and how at the household level, how finance plays a pretty regressive role in transferring wealth from the poor to the rich. Yeah, you talk a little bit about the sort of general trend of corporate profits, what share has come from finance and sort of the sort of pre-1970s, sort of 1980s days, mm-hmm. what the average sort of profits from the finance sector was, something like 15%, and then mm-hmm. it grew to a high of 40%, but then it's sort of been trending back down in the 20s. What do you think should be? Is there an optimal level of corporate profits coming from finance? Anything talking about the trends for where the profits of the finance sector have, have morphed over time? I think what's the optimal level is actually an open question, but we are actually looking all the way back to the uh, 1950s uh, until today. And what we're seeing here right now is that back in the days, it's only around 15%, and uh, way high up to around 30 to 40% in early 2000s. And currently, it's hovering around 25%. And so... I do not have the answer as to what's the optimal level, but I think all of us should think about, you know, whether this is a number that's, you know, 
warrants more explorations. Yeah. And you sort of talk about the sort of there's the, the the trends for corporate profits. There's also just the average finance worker is making a lot more than the average worker there. Like, what any do you have any commentary on what you think is driving the returns to labor in addition, you know, to the average finance person and versus the traditional sort of general employee? Well, I think the key idea we're exploring in the book uh, is to actually think about the amount of concentration of earnings on the financial sectors. And we're not interested in to look in the debate of whether the compensation is fair or not. And we also don't think people working in finance are particularly greedy compared to other workers and professionals. And what we're trying to see is sort of systematically what's generate this kind of super high earnings. And, you know, of course, one of the reasons is that there's a lot of money flowing into the financial sectors. And so we provide a historical analysis into why that's the case. And we also look into, you know, how should we think about the compensation in the financial sectors? Obviously, you know, I am my co-author, Megan Lee. Uh, we believe that people in the financial sectors work very hard and are all very smart people. But very rarely we actually look into, you know, if we compare them with other equally hardworking and smart people, whether they are making particularly more. And if that's the case, what's actually driving those outcomes? Um, hi, uh, Professor. This is Li Chen. I do yes. want to ask this question. Um, in economic literature, at least, there's a lot of talk about, you know, the scale economy because uh, yes. in the you know the superstar effect, which uh-huh. has uh, you know made the um, the concentration you know the inequality better. Like, how uh-huh. do you rule out that as a driver? Well. Yes, I think that's definitely a very possible explanation that's, you know, all these high wages we're uh, seeing here is employers trying to compete against each other to, you know, attract the most talented workers. And we do think this is something that's actually happening on the ground. In the meantime, we don't think of labor market in general and uh, particularly the labor market of financial sectors is entirely free of any institutions. So, you know, one thing we know is the 220 compensation or cost, the fee structure in the hedge fund sectors. And the 220 holds not necessarily because of the competitions, because this is the norms that's widely accepted by the industry. So if the market is actually really free, if, you know, financial service is really a free market, we should see, you know, a greater diversity of fee structure. Instead, we're seeing as people copying each other and we are seeing all these industrial standards that actually prevent competition. I mean, generally, now Lee Chen came from Vanguard, where it's basically, you know, the fees are, t- you know, the, the actually the main narrative in asset management today is fees are trending towards zero, that, you know, there's people giving yes. away index uh-huh. funds for free. Yes. Um, there's a lot of fee competition. Passive has generally taken share. Now, the hedge funds, there's still a lot of people in that hedge fund 2 and 20 aren't able to get the 2 and 20 anymore. They're, I hear mm-hmm. that's coming down as well. Um, but uh, sort of competition is is towards lower fees is one of the, 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 the that is coming. Yes, that's that that's it's, yes, definitely a trend we you know we are happy about. But you know we also know that's you know it's a very recent trend, and the financial sector was actually able to hold a pretty sort of you know robust fee structure for a long period of time. 
So is the rising of this influence in finance a U.S. phenomenon or is, you know, is a developed country phenomenon or, or it's actually global? It's a wonderful question. So uh, at the end of the book, we actually kind of look into studies for different countries. So I would say U.S. is definitely a unique case. But if you go to London, you see things that are very similar because I think financial industry essentially these days is a pretty global Industries that you know all these compensation schemes are being shared and globally rather than just only in the U.S. Let me just reintroduce our guests. We're talking with uh, Professor Ken Ho Lin, who's author of a new book, Divested: Inequality in the Age of Finance. Uh, there's a lot of important issues. Uh, Professor, that I think are definitely going to be coming up in the elections. And we talk about sort of the big rise of debt. Um, one of the charts I thought you had, which was sort of interesting, you know, there's a lot of people show, you know, companies are more indebted, people are more indebted. Um, but now you actually had a pretty interesting chart showing that the debt service to disposable income is actually at 30 to 40 year lows that, you know, because interest rates have collapsed, um, mm -hmm. really. Uh, that aggregate has has way come down. Any commentary on that? Yeah, so I think you know for this book we're trying to be nonpartisan in the sense of we're trying to highlight there are some benefits definitely coming from the development of finance. And you know one obvious example, like you mentioned, is that it's really much much cheaper to borrow now for some people than let's say thirty to. You know, 40 years ago. So we do see that because of interest rate and because of the liquidity that's available in the market, that there is some benefit. But the key idea we are trying to convey in the book is that often uh, when people talk about finance, it's financial insiders talking about finance. And for people, and including myself, who are benefit from the systems, we don't really see the potential harm this system is doing. And there are a lot of people are actually excluding from these financial systems. And I think part of the inequality we're seeing in the U.S. is generated by the divide between financial insiders and outsiders. On, on the debt issue, I wanted to get to the student debt mm, yeah. part because you were talking about how um, well, for sure, there's a lot of student debt, and there's a lot of proposals coming out on what should we do with all this student debt. You had a statistic that certain cohorts, maybe 40%, won't be able to pay back their debt. Um, what do you think? Where do you think this is all going to develop over time? The people who have paid off their debt um, are going to be unhappy that they paid it off, while other people get this problem where all student debt's canceled. Um, how do you think we manage that? Uh well, this is a wonderful question, and definitely now we have a lot of options on the table, and we're not sure which option eventually will be chosen. Uh, my take on this issue is that I would be very surprised uh, if we have a policy that's decided to cancel all the student debts without trying to have complementary policies that support people who already pay off their student debts. And so I would be happy to come back to the podcast if we have a policy in place and yeah. provide you know my thoughts on it. Interesting. Um, when when you when you also you talked a little bit about the average worker, you know, like Einstein made ten times uh -huh. uh, the average worker. Now CEOs are up to three hundred times. Like, what is the where where do you think the responsibility? 
is to contain um, COP? Because you talk a little bit about unions and the role of unions and, and labor. Now, isn't mm-hmm. the, the the you know the the real people who should be constraining CEO pay the boards of these companies? Like, why isn't it the board's responsibility versus having a union to be the one you know negotiating with the with the CEO? Well, I think this goes back a little bit to the idea of the financial insider and an outsider view of the world. So I think the board definitely are doing their due diligence in terms of trying to control excessive CEO pays. But in the meantime, the, bro, uh, the board is thinking about the firm in a different ways than the unions. The unions are composed of actually members are elected from the workforce and they would have a very different view in terms of what the fair compensation is. So I think fundamentally they have very different reference and benchmark in terms of what's a fair compensation. Another thing that's really interesting, and this is mostly in my co-author Megan Lilly's research, is that in her interview with financial professionals and executives, actually many of them are wondering whether they are getting paid too much. In the way of they see the company can probably provide the similar service with much lower costs. But since this is something all the insiders are doing, it feels normal, and it feels like they should be receiving as high as earning as possible. Otherwise, they are not doing their job. They are not, you know, fitting in with their peers. So, so the comment that that a lot of the finance executives think they're making too much, or or that they're that they're not making enough. Where, where, I, well, they are thinking. They are wondering whether, you know, what they do actually deserve yeah. so much reward. And I think so. a lot of the process here is a social comparison process, is that, you know, if you think your colleagues or someone successful is making so much money, you think that's the goal you should be aiming for. Um, I do want to drill down a little bit. So yeah. the rise of finance is really in the last 20 or 30 years, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what institutions have changed in the U.S. you think that causes this? I think... Uh, so in the book, we talk a lot of uh, about a lot of historical events that kind of contribute to it. I think the most obvious one is, you know, how the U.S. economy uh, has been under a lot of pressure to attract foreign capitals and has been uh, has been under a lot of pressure to become the center of finance, globally speaking. And I don't think we'll have time to go through these twenty or thirty years of history, but. Obviously, I think that pressure definitely leads to a lot of relaxing financial regulation and a lot of competition between sort of U.S. and you know London, particularly, to to attract the most capitals from. Can you give an example, like specific example? So I think you know the the clear one, and this one has been talked a lot about, is like you know how. Uh, the financial consolidation. So back in the days that, you know, financial institutions are very limited in terms of uh, the type of service they can provide and in terms of, you know, there's also geographical restrictions. But these days, there are basically no restrictions in terms of, you know, the type or the diversity of financial services one institution can provide. And of course, I understand there were always some sort of firewalls in between. And I think another sort of development regarding deregulations is that, you know, now we allow 
different financial institutions to merge with each other, and that creates the market powers that's unparalleled compared to earlier time. So you actually, so I think part of it is the abolition of the uh, glass seagull, you know, those yeah, yeah. Or earlier rules. Yes. So you think actually the financial institution has become less competitive, like too co- co- concentrated. Yeah, so uh, there's these uh, wonderful studies that look into, you know, whether the financial sectors in general has become more efficient. So, you know, in theory, with all the technology, everything's electronic now. We're not processing any checks, you know, by hand anymore. We would assume that over time, the financial services should be cheaper. And researchers look into, you know, histor- historical data, and what they are finding now is that we don't actually see the financial sectors has become more efficient. So for each dollar that's processed, that the costs remain actually quite stable over, the, I think, the past four decades. So we have to ask ourselves that, well, is technology actually helping the financial sectors become more efficient? If we think that's a possible uh, if, uh, thinking, then we may ask ourselves, like, who's pocketing the additional money that's generated from technology? Because in, in some ways, you would say, like, the trends at, uh, like, the major brokerage houses are free trading commissions. The fees on a lot of the asset management products are trending towards zero. Um, you know, there is a, a pressuring on fees everywhere. Now, the question is, you're sort of saying as a whole, overall, people are still paying. They really haven't seen their fees go down. Um, yeah. Well, I, I think there are examples that maybe, you know, us and all of the listeners can relate to is that every time we're making a transaction with our credit card, every time we're making a transaction through PayPal and so on, you know, we have to ask, like, should we expect that fee to be trending down or trending up, considering the technology is so down. much better? <laughs> yes. But, you know, if we look into the fee structures, we actually don't necessarily see uh, it's trending down. So it's yeah. actually still substantial amount. And then, you know, we it's, it's, it's an interesting thing. And obviously, we... You know, the smart listener knows that some sort of monopoly is in place and some it's not really a free market. We have big providers who's controlling how money are moves and we are going through them and we are paying our tax to them. I mean, yeah, you look at the stock prices of Visa and MasterCard, yeah. and you'll see that very clearly yeah. in those two businesses. Now, I'd also say, though, that the competition for that is coming fast and furious. And so that, like, I don't know that it's the government's job to come in yeah. and, and disrupt Visa and MasterCard. There's plenty of people out there trying to take down Visa and MasterCard. Yes, yes. And definitely, I think now with all this, you know, electronic payment systems. That, but interestingly, I think, uh, I think it's, I don't remember whether it's Visa or Master is actually purchasing the the clearinghouse of all the electronic payment recently. Yeah, so so I think Visa and Masters are also like pretty much like Facebook. They are trying to buy out their competition. Um, so uh, recently, you know, Wisdom Tree, my own company, yeah. has gotten into more digital currency uh, yeah. space. Uh, do you see that um, as a potential disruptor? That you know, digital currency and transactions there could could be a potential way of lowering yeah. 
So I want, you know, if I have to put my money, you know, on one side, I would be, uh, I would short digital currency. My uh, research has shown that, you know, economy at the end is, and especially financial system at the end is about trust. And I think a lot of digital currency, you know, talks about how this is a currency that's not manipulated by the states, but they kind of ignore that eventually people do not trust money per se. They trust in states, they trust in government, and that is why U.S. dollar is so strong and popular and can retain its value despite, you know, all these other people predicting there will be a huge inflation. So, you know, I think digital currency certainly has its potentials, but without some sort of backing from the government, I would be surprised any of the digital currency actually become mainstream. It's an interesting, the, the word trust is one, you know, I have a book here actually, you know, in my yeah. bag from a professor mm-hmm. at Wharton, Professor Werbach, who's mm-hmm. one of the digital currency experts here, and it's all about trust. The whole book is about trust. Yes. Um, and sort of on that closing, we have a few minutes left. Um, you, yeah. you mentioned that sort of finance is generating mistrust and sort of intensifying the precariousness among Americans. What do you think, you know, can finance do to restore trust? I think that's a wonderful question. I think, you know, it's really, you know, if we just talk about banking, it's really about you know, whether we can have banks that actually serve public interests. Because uh, a lot of financial outsiders these days, if you ask them why they go to uh, a payday lenders instead of trying to borrow funds from larger and, you know, supposedly reputable banks, research has shown that they fundamentally don't trust uh, the so-called reputable banks because of the lack of transparency and, you know, the type of fees they may have to pay at the end. And in contrast, even though to us, financial insiders, that's the payday lenders are predatory, they are charging interest rates as way above the market rate. Uh, the outsiders believe that these uh, lenders are actually very transparent in terms of how much they are uh, going to charge the borrowers. So I think the first step is to actually create some sort of transparency that's beyond the fine print. Yep. So the banks need to make it very clear of these are the things you should know when you sign when you open an account with us. Transparency is, I think, the age of the day, the name of the day for that. Uh, we, we talk a lot about in finance, mm-hmm. if you bring transparency, that brings that, that establishes a lot of trust. Uh, we're going to have to cut it off here. Professor Lin, thank you so much for joining yeah. us. He's author thank of this new much. book, Divested, Inequality in the Age of Finance. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. It's been a great show. Lee Chenren, thanks for being in the studio with us. Our producer, Patty Hall, sound engineer, Dion Simpkins. You can listen to us on our Behind the Markets podcast. Have a great week, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about WisdomTree, visit wisdomtree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu. 